time I get through here tonight, it's my hope and my prayer that that song, Ride On King Jesus, that Jesus will have been so elevated, so lifted up, that you'll say, you know what, he is the king of the universe. There's no one who can stand against him, and by result of me being a subject in his kingdom, that God is going to be able to work and minister. If you remember last time we, we read in, in Judges 6, 1 through 10, and we began to talk about the difficulties that, that Israel was facing as a result of Midian, I want to pick up now, and we're going we're gonna to go through Gideon's call. And so I want you to look and bring your attention to Judges chapter 6. We're going to read verses 11 through 24. It starts there in verse 11. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which is in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezerite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if, if the Lord is with us, then, then why has this befallen us? And, and where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that, that you talked with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until you come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour and the flesh he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and brought it unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there rose up a fire out of the rock and it consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes and then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight and when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord Gideon said alas O Lord God for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face and the Lord said unto him peace be unto thee fear not you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Ophrah of the Abiezerites. Let's pray. Lord, God, I pray here tonight that as we have read in your word, Lord, we saw where you revealed yourself to Gideon. God, he wasn't perfect. He didn't answer the questions correctly. And God, still you found it in your patient love and kindness, God, to show yourself to him. I pray here tonight, God, there, there are no perfect people among us, but Lord, we do crave to have you reveal yourself to us. God, I pray here tonight, King Jesus, Lord, let us see your glory, let us see your might, let us see your power through your written word, and we'll give you all the glory and all the honor. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My message here tonight is Gideon's call. Gideon's call. The last time that we visited Judges chapter 6, we found that Israel was trapped in a desperate situation at the hand of the Midianites and the Amalekites. For 40 years after the defeat of Sisera, they had enjoyed peace in the land. But this time of peace had ended up being a curse to them because instead of trusting God for the increase that they now had, instead they turned to false idols. And so because of this, we now see that God is having to use the Midianites to bring Israel back into a, a state of repentance where they turn back to him. We saw in, in the text that we read back in December that, that God sent a prophet to the nation of Israel as a whole, and he told them that you need to look back to the past. You need to look back at those times of deliverance from, from Egypt, and you need to remember that that is your God. You need to turn back to him. And if you've been a part of this fellowship for any length of time, you know that there's a great emphasis that is placed on the preaching of the Word of God. And, and I feel quite strongly, as does our leadership, that, that the most faithful way to preach God's Word is through a, a style of preaching that's called expository preaching. It's, it's, it's this term that is, is kind of somewhat mischaracterized, but it just simply means an explanation of Scripture. And so preaching through a character like Gideon, it, it kind of provides a few different challenges because whenever you go through, for instance, an epistle, you're able to just look at these bullet points that Paul says, do this, don't do that, and, and you can just kind of flow into what Paul is saying. But, but as you go through the character, as you go through these lives of these flawed men and women of God, you can kind of get stuck in this trap of saying, well, do this like Gideon. But then in the next verse, well, don't do that like Gideon. And there's kind of a bit of a, a give and take as it goes through that. But while there's some helpful things that go along in that context, and we'll see how Gideon, we should model him. We'll see how that, that he fell short at times. But, but what I want, the primary emphasis of this time that we spend in Judges 6 through 8, I want the primary emphasis to be on God. So I want to tell you early on as we begin to go through this that, that, that the, the whole entire book of Judges and, and this chapter um, as well is that the theme of this is it's God's readiness to deliver Israel whenever they turn to him in repentance. That is the emphasis that we see. It's his willingness to keep a promise to people who haven't kept their promise to him. Or in simple terms, it's God's faithfulness to the unfaithful. What a, what a great reminder that is, is that God is often faithful to us who are unfaithful to him. So as we travel through these, these three chapters, I, I want this to be just a recurring thought in your head of look at how God is using this situation to be faithful to people who do not deserve the faithfulness of God. If you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you over the book of Judges or over Judges chapter 6 to just write that. God's faithfulness to the unfaithful. There's so many times where God could have just written them off. There's so many times where God could have said, you know what, these are like the days of Noah. I'm tired of these people. I'm tired of them turning to false gods. I'm tired of them going away from me. And maybe he could have started another covenant with another man like he did with Abraham. But instead, we see that each and every time that his people repented, that God sent a deliverer to them. 
That's what the, the book of Judges is all about. In fact, if you go and look at that Hebrew word for judges, you'll find that it's, it's more of that connotation of a deliverer. Whenever we think judge, we think about the legal system and, and, and our thinking is kind of flawed in that concept of what a judge really was. But that judge was a man or woman that God sent to deliver his people out of bondage. And so we can look through their lives. We'll see with Gideon that, that these deliverers, they were not perfect by any means. But if God only used perfect men and women, guess what? He would never get anything done. Amen. He would, he would have to robe himself in flesh again and come down here and take care of it himself. But what a reassurance it is that God uses flawed men and women to be able to accomplish his purpose. What a testimony it is to us to say, God, there are times where I fall short. There's times where I don't do exactly what I was supposed to do. And yet, God, in your grace and your mercy, you still use us to accomplish your will. And this, this isn't just a part of God that was reserved for the book of Judges. No, his great love and his great mercy are still available and ready today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read a few verses of Scripture there here in a moment. But, but God is not waiting for our perfection. He's waiting to see if you have a different direction in your life. That word repentance, it just means a change into an opposite direction. Whenever God senses that you are coming back to him, guess what? He is going to move heaven and hell, and there's no force of the enemy that is going to be able to stop him to get back to you. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. I can't say it any more clearly or eloquently than Paul did there in the book of Ephesians. He says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. I was dead in trespasses and sin. Wherein in time past, you, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, a spirit that, that now works in the children of disobedience. That's who we were. Among whom also we had all of our conversations in time past, and they were full of the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And, and by nature, we were children of wrath, even as others. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love, wherewith he loved us, that even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us together with Christ. It's by grace that you are saved. And hath raised us up together, and he made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. And he says it again, For grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And at times we get so fixated on human performance and what I've done for God this week and what I did for God last week and am I measuring up, am I not measuring up and, and we neglect the fact that God's work of salvation is totally His. It's not ours. Yes, we have to answer that call to repentance. Yes, we have to turn back to Him but it is His work, it's the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary and His resurrection that bring us salvation. And I want to make much of this. I want to make much of God's love because we're going to go through these chapters. We're, we're going to see a great military conquest. We're going to see tragic consequences of pride. There's, there's all of these great lessons that we will learn from the life of Gideon. 
But whenever we get all the fascinating details, when we put them all to the side, we see a crystal clear picture of what the love of God looks like. And I will tell you, there's so many times where just sitting in my study and, and sitting at Mural City Coffee and, and looking over these times where it just it's just shocking to see that God could love these people of Israel, that God could love me. And that's what I want you to see. If there's anything that, that through we go, that's what I want you to see there's so many applicable truths that we can put into our lives from the life of Gideon, but none of them are more important than the truth of God's love. It's nothing like we experience on this earth. There's nothing that we can tie down to as a reference point to understand what God's love truly is. Can you imagine a love that, that was completely and utterly defiled by the sin of man, and yet God, rich in mercy, would still love us? And it's only through Scripture that we can uncover this great truth. That's why it's so important to read your Bibles. That's why it's so important to sit under biblical preaching. That's why it's so important to let the truth of God's Word begin to manifest itself in your life. Because without it, you just walk through life lackadaisically and you say, you know what, I, I've never really thought about God's love. I've never really thought about the riches of what He's done for us. But whenever you get into His Word, trust me, it can change your life. And whenever you understand that how great and how mighty God is, then guess what? You can shout out with the psalmist in Psalm 8 and 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that, that you would even visit him. Do you, do you see that tonight? Here we have felt and experienced God's presence on a personal basis. Who, who are we? Who are we to say that we would deserve this? We who have fallen short, we who are sinners, we who have not done everything perfectly as we've lived through our lives, and yet God has let us feel his presence here. Whenever you think of God's love, it gives you the confidence that you need to stand under persecution because Romans 8 and 31 says that the God of the universe is on our side. It gives you victory over depression and anxiety because in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, it says that our God is a God of peace and he loves you. Each and every one of you, he loves you. It will trample every fear and every doubt into insignificance because Romans 8 and 28 says that our God is in control and he is working all things to our good. It gives you the strength to withstand the enemy because 1 John 4 and 4 says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Why would we fear the enemy whenever our God is the God of the universe? I saw a picture today on Twitter and it was, it was, it was, it was sacrilegious. It was a picture of, of Satan and Jesus and they were arm wrestling. There, there's no... There's no, no force in hell. There's no demon. There's no devil. Satan is not enough to withstand the power of our God. And if you believe that, if you truly believe that, think about how it impacts your life. Just, just a basic understanding of what God's love does to you. It, it strengthens you. It encourages you. It, it uplifts you. It inspires you. It convicts you. 
and it promotes gratitude in our hearts. Just one element of God's nature can have such great power. So the doctrine that we preach, the doctrine that we believe, it's got to have a daily impact on our lives. It's not just enough for you to say, well, God loves me. You've got to live like you believe it. That there's so many professing Christians who, who would sing with their children, Jesus loves me, but they don't believe what they're singing. Can you grasp to yourself whenever you say, yes, Jesus loves me, what that means? What does that mean? That Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, that he loves me. It's a lie the enemy that would say that God doesn't love you and, and, and doctrine that is impractical, doctrine that, that we don't live out in our daily lives, it's impotent, it's nothing, it's useless. We've got to live like we believe what we say, like we believe what we sing, like we believe what we preach. If you turned your life in God's direction, he is going to fight every demon in hell that comes against you. He said that those that have been put in my hand, I'm not going to let them go. I'm going to fight for their souls. And, and all these spiritual wickedness and the darkness in, in all of these different places that we go against, we know that we walk in victory, not because of us, but because of our Savior. And so... You think about that who, who did God choose first to disseminate the gospel in Jerusalem? The very city, I, I told you of this last month, that John Bunyan wrote, that, that God went to Jerusalem, to the very city where he was crucified, to the very people who put him physically on the cross. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to Antioch first. I'm not going to go to Rome first. I'm not going to let my spirit fall in, in, in uh, any of these other places first. No, I'm going to let my gospel first be preached in the city of Jerusalem. And if God would do that, then who are you to say that you have sinned too much, that you have gone too far for God to love you? It's a message to all, but, but I especially tonight want the lukewarm or the backslider to hear me. God is a God of love. Is he going to judge? Absolutely. But, but right now, he is working towards the salvation of your soul. You have not drifted too far away. Israel turned to idolatry, the, the, the sin that was just unimaginable to say, how would you ever do that? The first two commandments, what do they deal with? Idolatry. Don't do that. If you're going to do anything, just don't violate the first two of the Ten Commandments. What did they do? They violated the first two of the Ten Commandments. And what did God do? He still went back to them. They cried out to him in their need. They cried out to him whenever they were enslaved by Midian and Amalek and, and the Philistines. And what did God do? He answered their call. He still worked on their behalf. And so if God could forgive idolatry in Israel and he could forgive the citizens of Jerusalem for crucifying you, then hear me tonight, he can forgive you. 
It's a lie from hell that would try to persuade you otherwise. So as we travel from the wine press where Gideon was called, and as we travel to his father's grove where Gideon tore down those idols, and as we travel to the spring of Herod where Gideon chose those men, and as we travel to the valley of Jezreel and see the great victory that God gave Israel over the Midianites, don't forget what God is doing. He's being faithful to unfaithful people. If you have your Bible, stay there in Judges 6. I want to show you some things from this story. The story of Gideon's call is one of the most fascinating accounts of a call of a man of God in Scripture. If you go back, there were around 15 judges considering whether or not you count Barak a judge or not from the time that Joshua died until King Saul took the throne. It was around a, a time span of 350 years. There, there was men like Ehud and, and Barak and Samson, even Eli and Samuel, and even the woman Deborah. They were judges over Israel. And yet the account of Gideon's call is remarkably different from every other judge who was called. Gideon and Samuel, they, they hold the distinction of being the only one who God spoke directly to as he called them to be a judge over Israel. Samson's parents, if you remember, they were spoken to by that angel of the Lord, but Samson never heard that direct voice from God as he was called to be a judge. If you go through and you look at many of the other accounts of those judges, they simply say that this man was a judge, he served for this many years, and then he died. But there's something different about Gideon's call. There's something different about the account here. And, and I feel as the, the author of Judges was divinely inspired by the Spirit of God to write that there's some lessons that he wants us to learn through this. He gives us this detailed account for a reason. There's a reason that this chapter, that these verses are included in the canon of Scripture. We see that our text, it opens in verse 11, and it describes Gideon to the reader. And we don't get a very good description of who Gideon was. Because he's found in a city named Ophrah, and he's in a wine press that has an oak tree nearby, and he's threshing wheat. If you look back, that oak tree there, it was a terebinth tree, and, and it was a tree that commonly grew in isolation. It just grew by itself. Not only is, is Gideon linked up with this tree that is mentioned in Scripture, but he's also linked up with this city, Ophrah. And that city, if you look back in Scripture, was known as a city of mourning. And I'll tell you, that is exactly where Satan thought he wanted Gideon to be, Right? And he wanted him to be isolated. He wanted him to be in a state of mourning. He wanted him to be in a spot where he was easy pickings for that, 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 that roaring lion that would come by. And the trials of this life, they, they have a tendency to isolate and to depress us. And guess what? We get to a point where we don't think clearly and we make foolish mistakes, spiritually speaking. And so the enemy of our soul, he, he wants us to think that there's nobody around, that there's nobody there. You're all by yourself. Yes, you should mourn there. What else would you do? Midian is against you. You, you haven't had a, a good meal in years now because Midian comes in and steals your food. At some point, Gideon's brothers were, were slain by these kings of Midian. So your family's dead. You don't have any food. Gideon is isolated and he's depressed. But I would bring you back to the introduction of this message. God is always, always there, and he is always working. 
This is when our doctrine of God has to manifest itself in our daily lives. Because if I were to ask each of you here tonight, are there times where you have felt isolated? I'm sure that many of you would say yes. Are there times where you have felt depressed? I'm sure that many of you would say yes. And yet, if we believe that God is a God of love, and we believe that God is sovereign over all, and that he has his eye on the sparrow, and how much more would he have his eye on his children? If we believe that, if we read that, in God's word, then we've got to live like it. And I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm not going to say where that I have had times where I've been just like Gideon and, and we'll see how he responds, not in a good way. We have to believe what we say about God. If our doctrine of God and who he is doesn't keep us grounded during these times, then it's worthless. And I would say to you here tonight, Satan doesn't care if you read your Bible. He doesn't care if you read about God's love so long as you actually don't believe it. So long as you don't believe it. We know that Gideon was was a part of the repentant remnant that, that Israel had that was turning back to God, and yet he was still in this place of isolation and mourning. Gideon didn't know the right answers to the hard questions. I spoke with a man at that, that conference that me and dad went to, and, and he does this, this um, uh, he has a ministry of apologetics where he goes to these secular campuses and he, he gets all of these questions about God. And he said one of the number one questions is, why, why does evil, if, if God, why evil, essentially? Gideon didn't have the answer. He didn't understand why Israel was under the subjection from Midian and Amalek, but he still remained in a place where he could hear God's voice. If you go back and and you do a study of the original language, you find that this, this situation is even bleaker than what it would appear because Gideon is in a really strange place to be threshing wheat. He's in a wine press. He, he's down in a, a concrete pit that they, that they use to, to stomp on grapes to, to make wine. Gideon, why are you in a wine? Why are you hiding? Because he thought Midian was going to come and, and steal his harvest. Usually what you would do is you would stand up on a hill and you would throw that wheat up in the air and then the wheat would be separated from the chaff. Or you would, you would get a bunch of oxen and you would tie them all together and you would let them stamp on that wheat until it was able to, to separate the wheat and the chaff. But, but, but Gideon is so afraid that what he's doing is, is that he's hiding out in a wine press. And not just that, but the the Hebrew word for thresh there, it indicates that the amount of wheat that Gideon was threshing, it wasn't even enough for oxen to come and stamp out. In my research for this sermon, I got on YouTube. I don't know anything about separating wheat from chaff. And so I began to look and and on YouTube, you can find a video of of oxen separating the wheat from the chaff. And then there's this pile. It was probably about as high as this pulpit and it maybe went uh, maybe 10 feet or so. And they were just stomping on that wheat. But, But Gideon had such a small amount of wheat that he was down in a wine press by himself. And all he had was a stick. He just, just, just a few sheaves of wheat that he had. Not very much. He had hardly nothing there. And, and you think about it, he, we're later going to find out that he's got at least 10 servants because he used 10 servants to go and destroy his father's idols. We don't know if his brothers were dead or not at this point, but he, he surely had a few brothers or sisters and, and his family was there. And here he is with just this small amount of wheat and he's stretching it out. And so that's what makes it 
probably one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Whenever the angel of the Lord comes up to Gideon, that weak, frightened, isolated, depressed little man, and what does he say? Hey, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. I can see Gideon got his stick with his little bit of wheat there. and Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? But you can see he's too weary in what he's doing to even quibble on this point. And so what he does is he instantly begins to accuse God for the current state of Israel. He tells the angel that, yeah, yeah, I've heard all the stories. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, I've heard about the Red Sea. I've heard about the manna. I've heard about Jericho. I've heard about all that stuff. But, but God has forsaken us. He's forgot about us. He's essentially saying that the state that they're in right now, that it's all God's fault. He's unable to reconcile the presence of God with the presence of suffering. In his mind, he, he can't understand why God would let these things happen to him, why he would let these things happen to his family, why he would let these things happen to the nation of Israel. And, and that element of thinking is pervasive in today's modern version of American Christianity because we feel entitled to live a struggle-free life, a, a life that's free of, of trials and, and temptation. We, we're servants of the King. We're servants of the Most High God. We shouldn't have to go through these difficult things. And we never once consider that God is using these things to accomplish his purpose in our life and his purpose in his kingdom. Gideon is almost disrespectful in the way that he speaks to the angel of the Lord. Now, we have the privilege because we're the reader. We can sit there and, and, and read and see how that angel of the Lord was classified. We see that, that that was a theophany of God. It's the angel of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It, it's, an, it's an image of God here. We know that from the onset of the story, but Gideon doesn't know that. And we see that in, um, in Judges 6.13, Clay, if you can put that first verse up for me. We can see that, that, that Gideon refers to that angel of the Lord. He said to him, O oh Lord, all lowercase. That word there is Adon. That just means, it's just like saying, sir. Sir, sir, if, 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 if God is with us, if Yahweh is with us, then why has all this happened to us? It's, it's so it's disrespectful. There's, there's no respect. There's no awe. There's no wonder. He doesn't realize that right now he is speaking to God. Instead, there's like this palpable sense of irritation in Gideon. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's depressed. He's isolated. He's mourning. He's sitting here beating this small amount of wheat with a stick. And he's like, hey, God's going to help y'all all out. Come on now. He, he can't. He can't comprehend that. Once again, consider the love of God. If I was God at that point, I was, you know what, Gideon? I've about had enough. That's enough. You call me sir, I'm the God of the universe. You can't even respectfully call me by my covenant name with Israel. I, I've had enough. But the great links that God goes to 
to bring his children back to him. In Luke 15, we're told the story of Jesus, and and he goes after, he tells the story of the shepherd who left the 99 to go and find the one. What love is that of the Savior? He didn't leave them where they were. He didn't curse Gideon. He didn't strike down Gideon for his flagrant lack of respect. Instead, he just patiently moved on. He he almost just ignores what Gideon says. In the next verse, he says, you know what, Gideon? You're going to be the next great deliverer of Israel. There's some great wisdom in this because Gideon was clearly in a state of distress. He, he was completely drained. He, he didn't have the answers to the questions. His, his, he was just completely lost at what to do. His answer wasn't just wrong, but it brought into question God's promises to him. Gideon deserved a strong reprimand for what he said, but instead God just ignored him. And there's times where that, that we, we speak with people, we counsel with people who are frustrated and who are angry and who are disappointed and who are depressed and they, they say the wrong things and sometimes you've just got to ignore them and just tell them about the goodness of God. Their, their view of God is so clouded by their present state that they cannot see God in his glory. And so they make foolish statements about God. God just ignored Gideon and he continued to talk to him, continued to reveal himself to him. And eventually by the end of the story, we see that Gideon sees a full representation of who God is. In verse number 14, God says to Gideon, he tells him to go. He says, I'm going to provide you with the strength that you need to defeat the Amalekites and to defeat the Midianites. And so now the wheels kind of start turning in Gideon's head like this guy, there's something a little bit different of how this guy is speaking to me. So, Clay, if you'll bring up that, Judges 6 and 15, look at how Gideon responds. Now he said to him, O Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That Hebrew word there is Adonai. And, and, it, and it shows us that Gideon is now beginning to understand that he's, he's in somebody's presence here that's a little bit different from just an earthly man. He, he shifts from using that just common word for sir to a word that would show us that he is speaking to deity. He's finally getting the impression this isn't just some random guy. He has been told now by an angel of God that he is going to be sent. The realization of that promise that God made to Joshua, that God made to Moses, that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that you're going to go in and you're going to conquer the land and it's going to be yours. It's finally starting to kind of roll in his mind. He's heard his grandparents talk about it. He maybe at some point heard his parents talk about it and and he's beginning to understand there's more that meets the eye with this interaction that I'm having right now, but there's a problem. The problem is that Gideon reveals that his family is one of the poorest families in Manasseh, one of the lower tribes of Israel, and that that he's the least in his father's house. But if you look back at the history of Manasseh, Manasseh was not always looked at as one of the lowly tribes of Israel. In fact, if you go to Joshua 4.13, you find out that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they went ahead of Israel and they said, you know what, we're going to go and fight the battle. We're going to go ahead and clear this all out. Manasseh was full of great warriors that God used to begin to purge the Canaanites out of the land. That was Manasseh, a tribe of warriors. 
And now Gideon's in a wine press, hiding out, threshing wheat. That they had led the charge for God's judgment in the land of Canaan. But as we open up the book of Judges, you begin to find out that they had kind of grown a little bit lax in their passion to fulfill God's mandates. Judges 1, 27 and 28 says, Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen or her towns, nor Taanek and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblium and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass that whenever Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute or forced labor, and they did not utterly drive them out. God commanded the Israelites to drive the Canaanites out of the land. I don't want you marrying their women. I don't want you serving their gods. I don't want you interspersing with them. I want you to be a people that I've set out for my own. And what did they do? Manasseh said, well, we've done pretty good, God. We, we kind of took care of everything. We're... We'll just kind of let some of them hang around. We'll just let some of them stay. I'll never forget sitting in Miss Mata's 10th grade Bible class, and we begin to go through the book of Esther, and we brought out the fact that Haman was an Agagite, that he was a direct descendant from King Agag, who God commanded Saul to go in and to destroy, to utterly annihilate every single one of those people. And what did Saul do? He did not obey God. And so then we see years and years, later that Saul's descendants are having to deal with this man Haman who directly came from a man that God told them to destroy. I remember her telling me that story and it just blew my mind that so many times I had read the book of Esther and, and so many times I had glossed over that point. Whenever God gives you victory over something, take victory over that thing. Don't, don't let it have anything to do in your life. If God says, get rid of that sin and he gives you victory over that thing, get rid of it. Get rid of it. They had set out for war, but when they crossed over the Jordan, at some point they, they decided, you know what, this will be enough. We'll just coexist despite God's firm orders to not do so. So they intermarried. They begin to serve their false gods, and now they were essentially their slaves. You, you see the, the ironic point there. They bowed their knee to Baal, and now they were on their knees to those heathen people. These, the once mighty warriors of Israel, now they're hiding in a wine press threshing just a small amount of wheat. God had promised them dominion. And now they were living under subjection. What an awful price to pay for disobedience to God. And there are many commentators, they like to point to, to Gideon's humility, that he said, I'm a lowly man, I'm in a lowly family, I'm in a lowly tribe. But, but it's almost just like this sense of hopelessness that's over him. It feels more like that Gideon is humiliated instead of the fact that he's humble. He has the pedigree to be a mighty warrior of God, but, but it's not a, no longer a noble thing to say that you're from that tribe of Manasseh. And he's not just from a lowly tribe, but we also see he's an outcast in his family. I mean, where, where are his brothers at? Where, where is his family at? He's, he's threshing wheat for the family. Where are they at? He's there by himself. Say, Gideon, get out of here. Go thresh wheat. Go do something. Get out of our lives. We don't want you around. 
I, I can't necessarily say that, that you could read into the text and say this, but, but we know that, that Gideon's father had these idols. Could it be that Gideon had said that, you know what, I'm not serving those idols. I'm going to serve the one true God of Israel. I can't explain to you why he has put us in this point of subjection, but you know what, I'm just going to be faithful to him. I'm just going to serve him. I'm just going to do what he's called me to do. I'm not doing it perfectly. I'm not doing it just right, but I'm going to live for him. And so we know that he's an outcast in his family. Gideon, he feels like a man with no hope in a hopeless situation. But God, he just continues to speak to him, continues to remind him, Judges 6 and 16, surely I'm going to be with you. Gideon, you didn't answer the question right. You you kind of called me into question over my promises, but Gideon, I'm still going to be with you. He doesn't give Gideon the tongue lashing that he deserved. He just continues to reinforce the fact to Gideon that this is not a fight that he's going to have to face alone. Gideon has turned in repentance and now God is running to him. And this reassurance, it just continues to chip away the doubt that Gideon has because he's finally ready to put some action behind his faith. And so Gideon, he, he asked the angel of the Lord, he says, would you stay for just a moment so that I can present you with the present? The present, it's going to be some unleavened bread and it's going to be a cooked goat. That sounds really appetizing, doesn't it? This, is, this isn't one of those prescribed sacrifices from, from the Pentateuch. This isn't one of those sacrifices that, that God gave Moses in Leviticus and told him. This is just something that, it's just an offering from Gideon to see what this man is going to do with this present, with this offering. Remember though, they're in a time of famine, right? They're, the food is scarce in the land. And the Bible tells us that, that he brought an ephah of flour. If you look, an ephah of flour is enough to feed a family for several days. So, so Gideon, with no food, there's nothing hardly to feed his family. He just has a small amount of wheat. He says, you know what? I'm putting God to the test. I'm going to see if this man is truly who he says he is. And he grabs in excess this sacrifice, this offering to go before God. And, and he takes this kid goat and, and he offers it. He's, he says, you know what? I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I am ready to stand on the promises of God's word. And so he gathers more than probably what he rationally should have. And he brings it back to God. And he says, you know what? If God, if you really are who you say you are, and prove yourself to me. He spares nothing as he prepares this present for God. There's, there's the feelings that he had had of isolation and, and of mourning and of hopelessness. They're now starting to be replaced by this strong urge of faith. All that God has done to provide Gideon, all that God, he is now able to see the promises of his word God has just spoken to him, right? God hasn't done anything yet. And Gideon is so convinced that he's going to go get enough food that could feed a family of, 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 of multiple people for several days in a time of famine. Because you know what? God has been speaking to me. God has done something to change my outlook on the situation. And now I am ready to trust in him. There's power in what Gideon does here. We, we know from the very beginning of time that all it takes is God's spoken word. 
Mountains materialize. The heavens just manifest themselves. Wildlife just appears at his spoken word in creation. There's power in what God says. Gideon, he he can't quantify it. He can't explain it. He has not himself seen any of these miracles of God, but he's been talking with the angel of the Lord. He says there's something different about what this guy is saying. He's saying the deliverance is on the way. There's something different. I'm hearing the word of God, and it's changing something in my mind. He came into this encounter with hopelessness. But the more that God spoke, the more that God began to speak to him, the more that the Gideon's heart began to burn with inside of him. Just as the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, they spoke. He didn't come out and, 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 and zap the rocks and turn them into bread. He didn't do some great and mighty miracle. What did he do? He just spoke to them. And what happened? Their, their mind, their hearts, they burned with inside of them. Why? Because they had just heard the word of God. They had just heard the word. He saw hope where there was no hope. He saw a path of escape whenever he felt like he was surrounded. For the first time in years, he prepared a big meal without wondering, is there going to be enough for next week? So I'm going to ask you here this evening, what voices are you allowing to speak into your life? What voices are you allowing to speak into your life? Is it the voice of the national media or of all the doomsayers? Is it the voices of Hollywood? Is it the voices of carnal Christians? Is it the voices of unconverted heathens who hate God? Who are you letting speak in your life? Because the angel of the Lord was just speaking to him. He wasn't doing anything. Gideon's just hearing the voice of God and it's changing something inside of him. He's got faith that is building up inside of him. We wonder why. Why do I get into these mental states of of hopelessness and depression? And and it's, it's just as easy as turning off all the talking heads and turning off all of those worldly influences and just letting God speak into your life. Just let him speak. Christianity, it's a practical faith. If we believe God's word is as powerful as as he says it is, then we need to read it. We need to listen to it. We need to sing it. We need to hear it preached. We need to at every point in our lives say, God, I've got to hear your voice. There's all these distractions that are going on around me. The world may seem like it's crumbling in, but God, I've just got to hear your voice. If that means turning on your Bible app before you go to sleep at night and just listening to the audible voice of God speak through His Word, then do that. Do that. Just listen to the Word of God because just hearing His Word completely changed Gideon's outlook on the situation. Over and over again, we need God's Word to be the main thing that enters into our ears. If we believe God's Word is what it says it is, And we've got to listen to it. I guarantee you that the feelings of despair and desperation and hopelessness and all of these things that Gideon felt, we can see through Scripture, they just drifted away. They just began to leave. Why? Because he was listening to God. Gideon, he he went from blaming God for the ills of Israel to, to testing his promises in just a few verses. The, the only thing that happens if we let God speak into our life and if we turn off all the racket, 
guess what? God can take all these things and he can work on our behalf. So turn those things off. Turn them off and turn God on. Psalm 85 and 8, whenever we let God speak, God speaks peace into our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16, God speaks to us through his word. Psalm 119.67 through 68, God speaks to us through trials. Brother Paul, whenever I was over it at his home, I, he would talk about the scriptures that we were reading through and said, Brother Justin, he said, I can't explain why I'm going through what I'm going through, but he said, I've been reading in Psalms 119. He said, and I came to 67 and 68, and I said, I read God's word. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. That's God's word. That's God speaking to us. That's God taking a difficult situation and saying, God, whatever you have to use in this situation, God, speak to me. John 14 and 26, God speaks to us through his spirit. So don't silence the voice of God. The more that we hear him, the more that we're prone to operate in faith. What are you doing, Gideon? There's no food. Why are you preparing all this for this man? Who is this man? I'm, I'm testing God's promises. I can't explain it. He's spoken to me. There's something different here. And so we see that whenever Gideon comes back, that he offers the Lord this present. He says, all right, God, here it is. What, what are you going to do with it? I, I've taken this action. I've stepped out in faith. So notice in verse 21, the offering is consumed with fire. And then see his reaction in verse 22. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, it finally makes sense to Gideon. He, he's heard God's voice, and now he has seen a mighty work from God. The sacrifice was just completely consumed there on that rock. Now it's not just his grandparents who were telling him about the Red Sea or, or telling him about the manna that fell from heaven. He has a personal experience now. He's heard God's word and now he has seen him work and it just blows him away. And so, Brother Clay, if you would put that last Judges 6.22. So remember, Gideon, he called that angel lowercase Lord Sir. And then he called him Lord, as in he is a deity, yes. But now that he has seen God work, and Gideon saw that he was the angel of Yahweh, so he said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. That's the covenant name of God. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and 4, you see that word there for God. Gideon is saying, look, that same God that I saw there, that, that God revealed himself there in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to my people, that's the same God that I'm now seeing right now face to face. That is what I am seeing. That is my hope. That is my promise. That is who is speaking to me. 
He now has a personal revelation of who God is. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is my Redeemer. He is my promise keeper. He is the one who is going to deliver me out of this situation. He has a personal revelation of who God is. This is what Gideon needed all along. This is what would have kept him whenever he was down there in that wine press scared to death. He needed a revelation of who God is and who he was there. He heard God's voice and now he saw the firsthand account of God's power. And he says, you know what? I'm ready for battle. I'm ready to stand against Midian and Amalek. Why? Because I know that God is with me. I know that God is fighting for me. I know there's no force in hell that can withstand my God, my Jehovah. Oh, yes, Lord. This is what we all need that situation that seems so hopeless, it doesn't seem hopeless whenever you have Jehovah there with you. That backslider that seems like they're too far away from God, it doesn't seem like they're too far whenever you can understand the love of Jesus Christ. The upheaval in our world that is so unsettling, so unnerving, it doesn't seem so bad whenever you realize who God is. And, and that is what I want us to all begin to understand. I've, I've heard so many preachers that, that have been asked the question, they say, what is, is wrong with the American church? And many of them who are, who are elders who have served the Lord for many, many years, they say that the American church does not know who God is. If Gideon had known who God was, they would have never fallen into idolatry in the first place, but there would have never been fear in his life. Why? Because my God is Jehovah. My God is the Redeemer of mankind. And so... Whenever we let the tempter do all these mental gymnastics in our head and whenever we let him shake us with worry, guess what? We can say, you know what? My God sits on the throne. Ride on, King Jesus. But it's not enough to just sing it. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. God forbid that we would proclaim an all-powerful God, but we don't live like we believe it. Our doctrine of God is worthless if we don't live like we know who God is. It took some time for Gideon to get there, but, but once he did, he was ready to charge 135,000 men with some lamps and pitchers and trumpets. That's faith. Okay, you think about, you know, walking into to your job and having people that are that are heathens and you're man, I'm really walking in faith today with the Lord. You think about what Gideon did. He said, oh, I've heard God's word. I've seen God work. I see that big force that's down there. I might just have 300 men with me, but I've got a pitcher in my hand and I've got a trumpet and I've got a lamp and I'm about to just run on down there. Why? Because I know God is right behind me and he's going to take care of the enemy. That's faith in God. That is faith in God. Can you imagine what God can do with a spirit-filled believer who just gets a glimpse of a picture of who God really is? It'll forever change your life. The size of the enemy, it doesn't matter. It could have been 135 million and, and, and Gideon would have said, yeah, I've got enough. I've got enough. I've got the Lord God plus one. The old preacher John Knox said, God plus one is a majority. That's all I need. It doesn't matter how many you're standing against. I'm standing on the promises of God. 
You can stand up with that prophet Elisha whenever he stood there and he, he told his disciple, he said, look, son, there's more that are fighting for us than are against us. If you could just open your eyes, if you could just see the great power of God. Sister Regina, if you would come, I, I just want to build your faith tonight. I want you to know that God is fighting for you. I want you to believe what you say, what you sing, what you read about God. Because he will prove himself to you. You can have that exact same experience that Gideon had. Just put yourself under the word of God. Just let, just let, I just got to hear your word, God. And we've seen healings. We've seen miracles. We've seen signs and wonders in our local assembly. And the more that that just begins to build your faith, the more that you say, I don't care how many Midianites are down there in the valley of Jezreel. I've got my God on my side. You can have that experience. You can go from just having a respectful admiration of God, sir, to an in-depth relationship with him where you know his voice where you know his covenantal name, where you have seen his great works firsthand, and it's all supported by that overarching theme of judges. God loves his people. He will not turn away from them if they turn to him in repentance. So I would say here tonight, there's three groups of people that are here. There's some who would call God sir, in a respectful way, but one that doesn't imply that they would actually serve Him. There's those that who would say that, yes, God is God, but I'm not willing to change my life to do the things that He tells me to do. Hopefully this third group, there's more of those here tonight, but there are those who says that God is who He says He is, and they have made Him their deliverer. They can call Him Jehovah it's obvious that that's the group that we want to be in. Whenever Gideon finishes here, he, he sets up an altar to God. He calls it Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah is peace. Gideon, you haven't won yet. There's still a battle to fight. Yeah, but God is peace. God is going to stand over all. There's nothing that my God cannot do. Deliverance... <clears throat> would have never taken place if Gideon hadn't determined that the man that he was speaking to was Jehovah. God, he, he patiently worked with Gideon. He didn't slap him around. Come on, Gideon. It's your fault you're here. I didn't do this. You did this to yourself. God was patient and long-suffering with Gideon. But at the end of the day, Gideon had to realize for himself, God, I've got to turn back to you. I've got to run to you with everything that I am. God, if you who are you are who you say you are, then Lord, I've got to run to you. Warren Risby said it like this: unless you are at peace with God, you cannot make war against the enemy of your soul. So God had Gideon had to realize that God was fighting for him. That that God would lead them into battle against Midian and Amalek. So I ask you tonight. Who are you going to be? Are, are you going to recognize God for who He is? Or are you just going to go and, and worship your little version of God and, and just hope that everything is good in the end? I would say here tonight that 
If at any point in this message, and it has nothing to do with me being up here, if it was any lay minister or our pastor, pastoral team, it doesn't matter, nothing from me. But if any point in this message you have felt like God is he's, he's, he's calling you, maybe calling you back, maybe calling you into a deeper sense of consecration, answer that call because God is speaking to you through his word. Philippians 2 and 13 says that God is working in you to prepare you for a work you can stand. God is never going to be the master of your life unless you, like Gideon, stand up and say, My Lord and my God, I will go into battle because I know that you are walking with me. These altars are open. Let's pray, God. Let's pray, God.